Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Kwame Anwachi at Hennepin County Library, North Regional. Cooking sensation Kwame Anwachi is one of America's best-known chefs of color and a vocal ambassador for Afro-Caribbean fusion cuisine. He first gained a national following as a Final Four contestant on the 2016 season of reality television juggernaut Top Chef. He wowed the judges time and again by ingeniously melding elements of his parents' Nigerian, Jamaican, and Creole cultures into never-before-seen culinary masterpieces. Industry mainstay, Zagat, named Anwachi to its prestigious 30 Under 30 list in 2016. While still in his 20s, Anwachi parlayed his celebrity into a posh restaurant in Washington, D.C., which quickly went belly up. Undeterred, Anwachi learned from his mistakes and started anew with Kith and Kin, an Afro-Caribbean eatery in Washington's Tony New Wharf district. Anwachi chronicles his personal successes and failures and perspectives on being a black chef in America more generally in the anticipated Notes from a Young Black Chef. Early reviewers praised it as a powerful, heartfelt, and shockingly honest memoir of following your dreams. It debuted on April 9th. How are y'all doing tonight? Great. Good? Beautiful. Um, I'm going to get into what the book really is about. Um, it's about my life story. You know, um, I think a lot of people ask me why did I choose to write a memoir at um, not even 30 years old. <laughs> and <laughs> well, I tell them that tomorrow isn't promised today. You know, and that's the realization of life. You know, a lot of my friends that I grew up with are not alive anymore or they're not here and they're, they're not where I am today, and they had a story to tell. So imagine if somebody told them, you're not old enough to write a memoir yet, then they pass away, and then their story is never written. So um, my book is for my friends that are not here anymore, you know, and they're for the future generation, and also generations before me. Um, it's for everyone. It's a story of triumph. It's a story of falling down and getting back up. You know, my mother um, is an amazing woman. She taught me everything I know. She uh, was an accountant growing up, and she was really letting babysitters uh, raise us. So she quit her job as an, an accountant and started a catering company that she operated from the house. 
So me and my sister became her first two employees. <laughs> Definitely illegal. Um, she did not pay us anything, but she it be, it did beat doing laundry, and I learned how to peel shrimp very quickly. Um, I learned how to fabricate vegetables, and because my mother is Creole and Trinidadian, I learned the rudiments of French cuisine, um, which came very helpful in my later formative years as a, as a chef. And um, <clears throat> I love those moments with my mom, you know? Those are the moments that I cherish. Um, and I go more in depth than that in the book. Um, but as I got older, I got into some trouble. Um, you know, growing up in the South Bronx is very easy to do when you're 10 years old taking the train to school and you know, you can easily wander off. Um, and she kind of nipped that in the bud in, in ways that you'll see in the book. Um, <laughs> in a very, very, um, very real shocking way. Um, she sent me to Nigeria. Sent me to Nigeria to learn respect. And the, the length of time that I was there um, was not the length of time promised to me when I got on the plane. <laughs> or else I would have never gotten on that plane. Um, but um, it taught me a lot of, of things. And I don't really go into, in depth in, into it in the book because it's something that I reflected on as I got older. You know, when I, you know, I went there when I was 10 years old. I came back when I was 12. So. I was a teenager. I got back into the same things that sent me out there in the beginning. But as I got older, I started to realize the, the things that we take for granted, especially here in America, like you know, cold water just right here, you know, um, electricity, things that just we didn't have in the village. You know, you know, Super Bowl Sunday, we get a we get a thirty pack of wings, right? It's awesome. It's easy. If I want 30, packs of, 30 pack of wings in Nigeria, I have to raise 15 chickens, you know? <laughs> and that's a, real, that's a real tangible thing that you, you don't think about when I, you know, when I was 10 years old, but I named all these chickens, you know? The, the, they were my friends when I was out there. But as I got older and I'm buying the cellophane package of chicken for this catering event that I'm doing, I remember my friend Red, he was a big rooster with a big red coxcomb and goofy that just walked funny, you know? And these things, they, they were real to me because I raised them from being small chicks. And I knew how much feed it takes and how much nurturing it takes to raise these animals, especially if you're buying sustainable meat. And um, it's really important and it shaped me into to who I am today. So, you know, I went to school, um, went to college, um, got into some trouble there as well. Um, <laughs> dropped out of college because the only thing I really loved doing was like working with my hands and like interacting with people from working with my mom. Um, so I started working in restaurants, you know, anything that I could do. I'm in the dining room, working in the kitchen, as a line cook. Um, I moved to Louisiana, worked in my mom's kitchen. She moved there as, after we graduated high school. And then um, I came back to New York started working in more restaurants, more affluent restaurants. Um, but I wanted, you know, I wanted to do what my mom did. So um, one day I was walking throughout Soho in New York City and I really love, always loved to go shopping. So there's like this new boutique. And I walked in and I started striking up this conversation with the store clerk. And she happened to be the owner of the store. I didn't know that at the time, but I was just talking, talking with her. She told me, you know, she just opened the store a week ago. She's really excited. She's doing this launch party. She was like, do you want to come? I was like, yeah, I'll come to the launch party. It'll be cool. She was like, yeah, it's the only thing. I, I need a caterer. I don't know when I'm gonna, where I'm going to find a caterer. And I was like, I'm a caterer. You never asked me what I did. 
And she's like, you're a caterer? How old are you? And I was like, ma'am, that is irrelevant. I am, a, <laughs> I am a catering chef. You know, I own the business as well as I cook here. Um, would you like to set up a tasting? And she was like, well, I really want to do these mini, mini cheesecakes. Do you know how to make cheesecakes? I was like, please do not disrespect me, okay? <laughs> I just told you that I am a chef. Um, so 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, she's like, all right, I'll see you then. I went home and I was like, shit, I don't know how to make cheesecakes at all. <laughs> so I called my sister, she's a baker. She sent me a cheesecake recipe. And I never made cheesecakes before. So like, first thing, you know, cheesecake, it's very simple. It's sugar, eggs, maybe a little bit of cream and cream cheese. That's pretty much it. Lemon zest, lemon juice. You wanna add a little vanilla extract. You wanna add strawberry to whatever you wanna do. Those four ingredients are like the basics of a cheesecake. So she's like, you know, mix these together, put it in the oven, put like a water bath around it, bake it at like 350 for 40 minutes until it sets, done. I'm like, all right, how hard can that be? I throw the cheese, you know, the cream cheese together, a little bit of cream, the eggs, the sugar, I'm mixing it up and it's like these big lumps of cream cheese in here. I'm like, all right, it's probably gonna melt. You know, I'll put it in the oven, it'll be fine. So I put it in the oven, comes out, it's just, it's, the texture is all wrong, it's all wrong. So I call her, I'm like, what's up? I got these big globs of like cream cheese in this thing. This thing takes three hours. I gotta cook it, let it set, then cool it before I can test it. You need to tell me every little thing I need to do to be successful. She's like, all right, just heat up the cream cheese. You need to heat the cream cheese so it tempers, so then you can mix the eggs into it. Like, think Kwame, I'm like, should've thought about that, all right. So I heat up the cream cheese. Heat up the cream cheese, add the sugar, add the cream, add the eggs, put the eggs in, scrambled eggs. I heated up the cream cheese too much. <laughs> so I'm like, but it's gonna work out, you know, like, because like it heats up anyway in the oven, right? That's logic. So I put it in the oven anyway and I let it set another three hours. Now it's six hours, six hours go by, right? I cut into the cheesecake, there's just scrambled eggs all in the cheesecake. No bueno. So, I figure out I need to just temper it so it's just warm enough to whip. Then I can whip the eggs in one at a time so it like emulsifies properly, then add the sugar in, then bake it. Three hours go by, perfect cheesecakes are just there. Perfect cheesecakes. And it's probably like 6 a.m. I have three more hours until, because nine hours went by, you know, I did this three times. I have three hours until the tasting, and I still have four other dishes that I have to do. But at this moment, I looked at the cheesecake, I looked down at my phone, I had like so many missed text messages, missed calls, I was dating someone at the time, I thought I was cheating on them or something. <laughs> but I realized that I had found my passion because I had spent nine hours doing something that I had never, I had never sat still for that long in my entire life. And at that moment in time, I knew that I should be cooking. So I went and did the event. She loved the cheesecakes, and I became the official caterer of the store. Um, <laughs> thank you. Small victories, small victories. Um, but, um, you know, I started doing events all around the city, and I felt like I had this glass ceiling. You know, I was hitting this glass ceiling with creativity. I kept running into the same problems with, I did with the cheesecake. You know, I only knew so much from being self-taught. So I thought about going to the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. And it was always like a dream of mine, but it was like $70,000 to learn how to flip eggs. You know, like I, 
I couldn't afford that ever. But I had this catering company now, and I had all these students that wanted hands-on experience. So I enrolled, I got in, luckily. Um, I started classes, I found out what the tuition was. It was like $3,000 a month that I had to pay out of pocket and the rest would come out of you know, um, student loans and financial aid. So I started doing catering events and all these kids that worked, that went there were like, what do you, like you have your own catering business? Like you're my age, I'll just come and work for you for free just so I can get some hands-on experience. I have nothing to do on the weekends anyway but party. So on the weekends, we would cook all the food in the dorm room, pack up the van, all go down to New York City and do catering events. And I was able to pay my way through culinary school from that. And when I went to culinary school, all I wanted to do was become the best caterer ever. I was like, I'm gonna go to culinary school, I'm gonna come out, I'm gonna be a badass mother. You know, like I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be it when I come out. And when I got there, I learned about so many different types of cuisines. I learned about all the really great restaurants in New York City. Um, and we have an externship program that we have to do. It's like a fancy word for interning. And I went and got into one of the best restaurants in the world. Um, it was in New York City at the time. And it was a kind of a rude awakening for me because I had worked in kitchens in Louisiana and there was a bit of racism there. And I was like, okay, I guess that's how it is in the South. Because I was from New York, I never really experienced it, that it, so blatant racism. Um, but when I got to the one in New York, it was kind of the same thing. It was just a little bit more passive, you know, and people were getting passed up before me. And I was, you know, they didn't use the words like the N-word. They used words like lazy or ignorant and things like that. So I put my head down because that's what you have to do in the kitchen, whether you're white, black, blue or purple. You put your head down and you keep pushing. So I kept pushing, did really, really well. Um, you would think I would quit fine dining after that, but I went kicking and screaming into another fine dining kitchen after that because I really wanted to learn. You know, um, I always have this saying, if you want to be the best, you need to learn from the best. You know, you need to at least see what they're doing and get a taste of it. So I went to work for that kitchen and kind of the same things followed me there, um, which you'll get into, into the book a little bit more. Um, but from there, I did a uh, pop-up dinner club called Dinner Lab. They had, uh, the supper club that was in many different cities all across America. So they had one in New York City, in Dallas, in Minneapolis, and you would pay a membership fee. It'd be like $150 a year. And then you get access to these up and coming chefs. And you'd pay like $90 to eat a five course meal from them. So when I was working at 11 Madison Park, I did one in New York City. At the end of the dinner, it was very brutally honest, everyone was a critic. You got to write from one to five how you felt on each dish. You got to say what you would actually pay for this if you were paying again. Um, so out of five, I got a 4.8, which was like really, really good. So the owner of Dinner Lab was eating at my dinner and he was planning this Dinner Lab tour. So it was a 10 cities, 10 chef tour. 10 of the best chefs they've worked for, that they've had come through their doors, which they could quantify by the scores, would go to all of their 10 locations around the country Whoever had the best score at the end would get a million dollar investment in their dream restaurant. Now, I was young. I was like really fed up with what I was doing in, in fine dining. I was like, okay, this is something that I could do. It'll be fun. I'll be able to see the country. Um, I'm pr probably not gonna win because a lot of the chefs were a lot older than me and a lot more seasoned. Um, but I'll be able to see the country and I'll be able to cook my own food and really find out what I wanna do next in this industry. Well, I did the competition and I won. Um, not, I mean, I, was, I had no intentions of winning. I just 
cooked the best food that I could possibly cook. Because you weren't, it's not like I was cooking alongside someone else. Like when I was in Miami, the other person was in New York. When they were in New York, the other person was in Philly. And we just rotated through the cities that way. So you only found out your scores at the end. And um, also at the end, I found out that that company went bankrupt. So I missed out on that opportunity. But by cooking in all these cities, I cooked for thousands of people. And a lot of these people that came there was looking for the next young talent to invest in. So I got uh, opportunities in San Francisco, in Oakland, in New York City, in Nashville, and in Washington, D.C. And I fell in love with Washington, D.C. My grandfather was a professor at Howard University for African American and Anthropology Studies. And um, I spent my summers there. So when I went to D.C. on these dinner lab tours, it reminded me of like my childhood, of the fun parts of it. And um, I also reminded me of my grandfather, who I spent some time with in Nigeria as well. So I decided to settle on D.C. with some uh, new restaurant investors, never opened a restaurant before. Um, I took my best friend from culinary school who worked with me as well in New York City, and we opened this restaurant. Now, they gave us a golden ticket. Every time they, we asked how much was the budget, they said, there's no budget, man, do what you want. <laughs> Which should be a red flag, I know, looking back on it now, but as a kid, comes from the South Bronx, I mean, I don't really get any blank checks often, you know, and I don't think many people get blank checks often, regardless of what, you know, where they come from um, at that age as well, you know, so the questions that I should have been asking, I did it, and I just turned a, a blind eye to, and we kept building this restaurant, and the restaurant went from a $400,000 investment into a $2 million investment, because there are things like zoning laws that these new restaurateurs had no idea about and uh, changing a residential building into a commercial building is incredibly intense because you have to change the size of the pipes coming in from two inch to four inch, whether it's gas or water for the water su like suppression system. So, you know, a rinky-dink little fire alarm doesn't work in a restaurant. You need Ansel systems and, you know, things that we just didn't know. Now, had I partnered with a restaurateur that had many restaurants, we'd have been in a better position, but I doubt a restaurateur that had many restaurants would have partnered to me at the same time, <laughs> if I'm gonna be quite honest. Uh, so, you know, it was, a, it was a restaurant that we put a lot, lot of love into um, that didn't, didn't really pan out well. Um, but luckily I had a lot of great people around me that I could confide in and that were there with me before this $2 million investment and was there with me before Top Chef that believed in me more than I believed in myself just because of my work ethic. And I think, you know, it's really important that you walk away from this conversation knowing that, you know, it's not always what you can do as a person. It's like the people that are around you, what they think you can do, because that will propel you more than anything. So um, the story ends well. You know, I opened up a really, really great restaurant on the waterfront. You know, I was just awarded Food and Wine's Best New Chef 2019. We're in the Michelin Guide. Um, I was nominated for a James Beard Award this year, so it, it worked out well. Thank you, thank you. Um, but it was just perseverance, you know. I'm gonna read this article that I wrote for Food & Wine Magazine um, that I think kind of sums up. Um, some things I didn't touch on, just being um, a person of color in an industry that we've worked so hard to get out of that we're trying to get back in, you know? So um, 
Here goes nothing. Who's in charge here? Everybody in the kitchen just brushes it off. It's a common occurrence. The delivery guy walks to the only white person who just happens to be walking through the kitchen. Hey man, how's it going? He says with sheer difference of enthusiasm. Can you sign for this, bro? The server, still not really knowing what is happening, says, actually, no, I can't. Chef is right there. Some of the line just snickers at the sheer ignorance. I mean, I'm at the head of the pass, wearing Chris wipes, whites, Sharpie in hand, calling out for hands as the wait staff walks by and firing Kampachi Escovich at the top of my lungs. But despite the clipboard of the day's prep hanging before me, the neatly folded towels next to my station, the cake tester peering out from a button of my dry clean chef coat, and executive chef Kwame Onwachi embroidered on my Brigard jacket, all he sees is a young black man who couldn't possibly be at the helm of a three service a day restaurant that is in the Michelin Guide. He just sees color. Some of the cooks just shake their heads. Some of them are fuming. But it's been a normal occurrence for most of my life. I grab the invoice, scribble my signature, and continue firing off the next ticket that prints out of the micros machine. Welcome to a day in the life of a chef of color. There are a lot of rewards and recognition, too, and I don't want to diminish that. When I walk into the dining room of my Afro-Caribbean restaurant to a sea of people of all colors, enjoying food from the diaspora, eating with their hands, and listening to Lauren Hill in an upscale setting, I feel pride. There aren't many places that offer this. Our cuisine has long been regarded as ethnic food, bound to the humble mom and pop shops that you go to when you want a sense of home or culture. Now we have restaurants like mine, like Eduardo Jordan's June Baby and Solare, and Nina Compton's Compare Le Pin and Bywater American Bistro, where we can celebrate special occasions while still celebrating our culture. This is why we do it, right? Yes, absolutely. But there is still that yearning for recognition. I don't know about anyone else, but if there is another level to achieve, I inherently want to reach for it. Michelin stars, four stars in the paper, food and wine best new chef, James Beard, whatever your local restaurant award is, I want it. Just like every other occupation, being recognized for your hard work gives you a sense of purpose in what you're doing. And when I look at the reviews for some restaurants, I can't help but think, if there were more critics who are people of color, would things be different? I think back to The Chappelle Show. We all know him for his black and blind white supremacist and his hilarious Prince impersonation. But what really sticks out to me was a Law & Order episode. It was a direct parallel of what it's like for a black person in the judicial system. But if, a white person, if, but if a white person were put there in that same situation. In this sketch, the police bust down the doors and arrest a white guy working in finance for a crime that shouldn't involve all the theatrics. Meanwhile, the black drug dealer in this episode is kindly asked to turn himself in whenever it is convenient. Long story short, the white guy is about to get a guilty sentence and when the judge makes a reference to how this was a fair trial by the jury of his peers, the camera cuts to a jury of all black guys in do-rags and Tims. <laughs> it is hilarious, yet sad when you think about it. This is a reality in and out of the courtroom. In the culinary industry, we are so often judged by our African, Caribbean, African American, and Latin food by people who have little to no emotional or cultural connection to it. I can count the number of black food writers who have interviewed me for major publications on two fingers. Their enthusiasm can't be tamed. They understand the cuisine, but most importantly, they understand what a restaurant like mine means for the industry. It means more people who look like J.J. Johnson, Naisha Arrington, and Gregory Gorday, to name a few, will eventually get to open up places of their own. Maybe it will inspire more people to write about them who also look like them 
diversifying the industry in totality. When I go out to eat, I understand how a black food writer feels when dining in a restaurant as one of the few mainstream black food journalists. Uh, I'm talking about Korsha Wilson. Just as she wrote about in a much shared eater essay, a critic for all seasons, I don't feel the connection that critics sometimes feel immediately. The feeling of just being waited on or taken care of. The feeling of just being, period. It all comes with a sprinkle of, do I belong here as the only black diner in a refined dining room? And a dash of the looks from the diners and staff that says, how did he find out about this place? Not until someone checks the name on the reservation or recognizes me does a good table open up or the famous, let me see what I can do to get you in, happens. And then suddenly the reviews make sense. The accolades live up to their potential. But as I sit there in my Malcolm X hat and Miles Davis screen print tee, I wonder if the other patrons who look like me without the pedigree or connection to the industry would ever feel the same way I feel dining while black. I wonder if a critic who loved going to the South Bronx, Lagos, or Accra as much as they love vacationing in Hawaii, Florence, or Chiang Mai would dole out the same praise. Could they even be capable of that without smelling the scent, seeing the beautiful smiles, and understanding everything those people went through to now have a restaurant where they, find, where they are finally allowed to legally sit in and enjoy their cuisine and for it to be also recognized and valued like those lauded in the mainstream press? The answer is simple. Restaurants and major publications have a huge responsibility in making the, minor the minority feel included in this vast and diverse industry. That means hiring more people of color to review, patronizing more restaurants run by up-and-coming chefs of color, hiring and investing in people from all walks of life, and celebrating different cultures in a genuine way. Let's not forget, it's only been 55 years since we've been able to sit in restaurants legally. My mother is 54 for context. I wonder when was the first review on a black-owned restaurant. We have worked so hard to get out of the kitchen, and now it's time to do whatever it takes to get back in and be recognized for it. In the meantime, all that we can do is continue to sign our names on the invoices, nod, smile, and hope that one day we'll be recognized not only for the color of our skin, but for the talent in our bones, the skills honed throughout the years, and the dedication it takes to be able to stand at the head of the pass. So this book is not just a book for young black chefs. It's not just a book for young chefs or just black people or people that are not in the, this book is for everyone. It talks about coming from somewhere um, where the stacks or the card is, cards are stacked against you um, and shuffling that deck and throwing it away and lining it up the way that you want it to be. Because um, there's gonna be a lot of things in life that don't turn out the way that you want it. Um, but you're still here and you have plenty of time to do whatever you want to do. With that, we've reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Kwame Anwachi and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring if there are many cooking outreach opportunities for incarcerated people. Yeah, absolutely. There's, a, um, there's something in D.C. called D.C. Central Kitchen, and they only hire people that have been like incarcerated or um, come from um, like low-income areas, but 
they, it's a school, so it's not even like they don't have to pay, they get a certificate at the end, and then they're qualified to go out into the job force. So, and I volunteer with them all the time. Um, there's, there's a couple things like that around the country. And I know uh, some prisons have culinary programs as well um, that can kind of get them on the right track or at least spark that interest so when they come out. This audience member asked how Anwachi was able to balance his job as a chef while simultaneously writing this book. Well, I worked with a co-writer, which helped a lot, but um, I talked to them in between services. I talked to them before service. Um, we talked for about probably every day for about a year. And then after that, we had scheduled talks to kind of go over um, what he had written from what I would speak about. So it was a collaborative effort, um, but it took a lot. I mean, it wasn't easy, but I was in it. I signed the, I signed the dotted line, so I had to write this book, you know? I had to produce. This question is about what motivated Anwachi to write his memoir. So I, was, I used to do a lot of motivational speeches and just tell my life story. I didn't really know if it was gonna impact anyone or not. Um, I would get invited to talk to like youth in the Bronx um, when I was younger, because one, they looked like me, but also they were kind of the same age as me. So um, I did a talk at Bitten Food Conference in New York City, and it was like the biggest one that I did. And um, there was a literary agent in the crowd, and she said, you need to write a book. And me being from New York, I was like, how much is it gonna cost me? <laughs> Our next question comes from an audience member wondering where Kwame Anwache first learned to appreciate food. Well, my mom is a phenomenal cook. So there's, there's something in the book that talks about me going to my friend's house and eating food for the first time outside of my mom's kitchen. And I'm like, what is this? Yeah. And literally, you know, a child, you're brutally honest. So I'm just like, I said, why does this have no taste? It's my friend's, my friend's mom, like, I was like, this is tasteless. And she's like, if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. And I was like, I'm sorry, Miss Fran. I didn't, I didn't know that that was rude because I had never eaten at anyone else's house before. I was, I was literally asking, why does this taste like nothing? Because it just didn't. Um, but my mom taught me flavor, flavor profiles. You know, it helps having a, you know, Trinidadian and Creole mom and a Nigerian and Jamaican dad. You know, so the food that I'm eating is like highly flavored. Um, they were like pureeing stews to feed to me as a baby, so my palate was trained you know, to pick up on you know, nuttiness and spiciness and acidity and sweetness and things like that. This audience member asks if Anwachi still experiences subtle racism. It's unfortunate, you know. Um, it's something, unfortunately, that I'm used to and I can pick on quickly if someone has, uh, you know, an, an aside that tends to go that way, but it comes with the territory. Unfortunately, you know, I was on the phone today with um, <laughs> um, Michelin guy was like, they were interviewing me about the book because they read the book and they're going to do an article and they were just like, have you noticed a change in things since your books came out? I'm like, no. What? You... <laughs> what? <laughs> First of all, it's been like five days, but, <laughs> but also things don't change that way. That's and annoying. yeah, but also, you know, I've been asked in a more serious way, like, you know, do do you what do you hope from this book? And to your point is like, I just hope people start to think when they're not calling back to someone of color, but they're calling back to someone that's not. 
it may just be subconscious. It may not be outward racism, you know, because I think a lot of times racism is uh, misconstrued in just a, a familiarity where like you see someone in something like when I see you, I can see my stepfather in you. You know what I mean? Like that's real, right? I don't see my stepfather in you. So like if you tell me something, I have some sort of like point of reference to your tone of voice, the way you're sitting right now that reminds me of something. And I think that's where it, um, the things get misconstrued. But if we start talking about these things, then I'm gonna think about the way that I'm responding to you and responding to you because of the way that it may make you feel. And it's not okay that I'm doing these things. Same thing with jokes that are racist jokes. Like I'm gonna start thinking about them before I say these things. And I think the more we talk about it, the more you talk about these instances that you have in your kitchen, the more I talk about them, it'll get people to start thinking. Um, and it will change over time. Nothing is gonna change overnight. But the more people think about these things and how it'll make someone feel, the more things will change. This question is what Kwame Anwachi's mother is up to now. I didn't get into that. My mother's a chef. Uh, she's a personal chef in the Cayman Islands right now. She's living the beautiful retired chef life. <laughs> she lives on the beach. She cooks for a family of two, five nights a week, dinner, and that's it. So, yeah. Yeah, she, you know, working in fine dining is, it's not for everyone, you know, because of the things that I went through, you know, and it's also very incredibly difficult. You know, you work 16 hours a day. You work that normally, but this is like, you're working 16 hours a day and eight of those, you're like peeling pearl onion petals like this. So like, it's very monotonous. And if you, if you don't love that, you don't, you're not gonna do it. You're gonna be like, I don't need this. And you're gonna walk out. So, you know, my mother just had a different path. You know, she was a executive chef of many catering companies which is amazing for her to come from like this little humble Bronx apartment to like being the executive chef of the biggest catering company in New Orleans. So like now after that, she's on the beach chilling right now, so yeah. This next question is about what it was like to be a reality television contestant. Yeah, Top Chef was great. Um, it was very, very intense. It's a lot harder than it looks. It's however you think it is hard, it's a thousand times harder because there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that you don't see, um, like cameras in your face while you're cooking, producers asking you questions like, Kwame, you want to ask what Jim's doing over there? No, I don't want to ask what Jim's doing over here. I got to cook my dish, but you can't say that. So you have to be like, hey, Jim, how's it going over there? And he's like, it's good, Kwame. I'm cooking chopping these onions. That's awesome. What are you making? I'm making an onion marmalade. That's so cool, man. Can't wait to see what you put up. And it's, and it's like, you know, and you, if you want TV time, you do that. If you don't, a lot of times I did it, and I'd be like, I'm not asking him anything because they're not going to get that on camera. So, and I continue chopping. But um, it's, um, it's really intense. It's really, really intense because you wake up at, 6 a.m., you know, they film you waking up and everything. Then they refilm you waking up and everything. And then they refilm you again. But then you go right into challenge mode. And then you're cooking for like a chef that has like nine Michelin stars in San Francisco, you know, and you have 30 minutes to make an impression on him or her. And it's very, very intense. You know, it's you're cooking for like a chef you looked up to your entire career. So it's, it's the real deal, you know. Very, very intense. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering 
who Kwame Anwache cooks for. I cook for everyone. My food is for anyone that wants to eat, really. Um, I love cooking for people. I love seeing their reactions. Um, and that's what really attracted me to the industry. It wasn't cooking with my mom. I honestly didn't care for that. It was until I cooked my first dish and gave it to someone and saw someone eat it. I was like, this is it for me. I got this. Um, so I think authenticity is it's true to what you grew up eating. So for instance, for me, right, there are things on my menu that what it says is what it is. Jerk chicken is jerk chicken. I'm not like making a jerk chicken roulade and stuffing it with this and that. No. I mean, I'm taking organic chicken. I'm brining it for 48 hours. I'm marinating it for 24 in my own like jerk paste. I'm getting wood imported from Jamaica and smoking it in pimento wood and then hitting it on the grill and then basting it in those juices that dripped from it in the smoker. Yeah, that's cool, right? Like I put a lot of effort into it, but I'm not, all that isn't written all on the menu. It just says jerk chicken, you know? But something like sambusas, which is from Ethiopia, um, it's kind of like an Ethiopian samosa. Um, yeah, I have a little bit free reign on it because I didn't grow up eating that, but it's something that I'm, you know, it falls under my wheelhouse of Afro-Caribbean cuisine. You know, I have a goosey stew on my menu. It's a Nigerian soup, essentially, with like ground melon seeds and crayfish powder and fermented locust beans and um, pumpkin leaves. And then we serve it with pounded yam. I grew up eating that, so I'm not gonna make like a spherified or goosey ball and like, cause I, I can't like, that's off, that's like authentically me, you know, it's what I grew up eating. So I think the things that you grew up with for me have to be authentic because my mind is always gonna go back to what my aunt made or what my grandmother made. And if it's not better than that, then I can't, really, I can't really mess with it. But if it's something that I've researched or I had one time on a trip to Mumbai or something, like, yeah, I'm gonna try my thing at butter garlic crab because I don't have any cultural reference to it. Um, so that's my take on authenticity. It's, it's, if it's authentic to you, it's, it's authentic and that's it. So thank you all so much for coming out. I really appreciate it. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library North Regional event with Kwame and Wache. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Lorna Landvik at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Lorna Landvik is a comedian, playwright, and a prolific novelist. Her newest book is Chronicles of a Radical Hag with Recipes. When a curmudgeonly but beloved newspaper columnist slips into a coma, her editor republishes old articles to fill the void, dredging up a host of memories for Evan's neighbors. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.